What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as our immigration numbers continue at a record pace, local political leaders push the feds to slow down. Pork Whitlam Mayor Brad West joins us. Plus, we look ahead at provincial politics in 2024 as an election looms. Keith Baldry joins us for the week that was in politics. And we continue our year in review series as we look at the year in entertainment. From Barbenheimer to the streaming wars, Rick Forchek joins us. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's get to our top story. Porcoit Lamaire Brad West is just the latest local leader expressing his concerns over our immigration levels. In BC, we have set a record once again as over 150,000 people have moved to British Columbia this year. You may recall Canada passed the 40 million population mark earlier this year. Joining me now is Porcoit Lamaire Brad West. Brad, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Jazz. Uh, I was uh, looking at uh, an article uh, in the last 24 hours or so um, that basically talked about the growth of of our population here due to immigration. Uh, and you are certainly one other mayor now who's stepped up uh, speaking about your concerns in regards to immigration. Walk me through how you got to this position. Well, I, I think it's really quite simple and I think common sense. Uh, our, our country is struggling with uh, immense pressure on so many of our various systems and, and certainly our housing is first and foremost uh, on that list, but our healthcare system, our education system, childcare, you name it, our infrastructure. And at the time when we're going through that struggle, uh, we are seeing record numbers of people coming to our country and it you know it becomes a, a, a matter of simple arithmetic um, you know it was interesting to see uh, you know the BMO uh, come out and say with the uh, context of Canada's affordability crisis uh, you're adding this level of population and uh, it, it's just it defies uh, reality you know in the first, pardon me, in the last three months, our population rose over 430,000 people. Um, the, the pressure uh, is just immense. And all of the announcements that government has been making around changes to zoning legislation, all of these measures to try and add additional housing supply, I mean, they're they're just being evaporated in a nanosecond when you're seeing such significant population growth. Uh, and so I think we need to have a reality check. And I think the federal government needs to bring those numbers back down to earth. Uh, when we say, when you say bring back those numbers down to earth, are you talking about the immigration numbers specifically, the official numbers, which by 2025 at half a million, I think we're at about 470,000 uh, right about now, just in and around there. Uh, per year. But on top of that, of course, you have temporary foreign workers, you've got international students. I think by the time all that's added up, we're probably closer to uh, probably about two million um, people or a million and a half. Is this a question of cutting back on international students, temporary foreign workers? Or do you think we actually have to cut back on even our immigration numbers, our official immigration numbers? Well, I do think we need to look at all three of those streams. Um, because they all are having the same impact in different ways, but they're all having a very significant impact. Um, and the other thing is that the federal government has been notorious at undercounting. Um, you'll recall that a couple months ago, there was a story that we undercounted by a million people. Uh, the numbers that are most recently out show that the number is 1.25 million people in annual uh, population growth, um, and the vast majority, obviously, through immigration. Um, when I look at those various streams, there are real challenges with all of them. Uh, the temporary foreign worker program is absolutely rife with abuse. Uh, the stories I have heard from people who have come here on a temporary foreign worker permit and the exploitation that those people have been subject to uh, is disgusting, quite frankly. Um, government is well aware of these abuses, and, and yet I think, is, is addicted to this program. It, it's 
you know, often used as a, a form of uh, corporate uh, subsidy, I think, uh, suppression of wages. Um, and the people who are brought to our country through that program under false pretenses uh, are, are not treated in a way that I think any Canadian sh- would be proud of. Yeah, and so there's... The... Sorry, continue. So I think there, there's significant uh, uh, challenges there, and I, and I think that um, the, the, con- the, the loosening of uh, the provisions around uh, the ability of an employer to bring people over and, you know, and, and the increase that you're going to see there is a significant challenge on international students. Uh, same issue. And then, je- yes, on immigration as well. Uh, the numbers that the federal government are talking about uh, are historic. They're record levels. They intend to supercharge immigration. I think in many respects they're using that to paper over some of the significant and structural weaknesses of the Canadian economy, Jazz. Um, you know, they, the idea is that if you throw enough people, uh, you know, you, you supercharge population growth, and that sort of keeps things, you know, humming along. And our economy has become so dependent on real estate that, uh, you know, that becomes sort of the first and foremost priority. And I think that that's part of why you see uh, these, um, you know, record immigration targets. I've even had developers who some might argue have an interest in seeing high uh, population uh, targets and high immigration targets um, because of the business there. And I've even had developers say to me, like, this is insanity. We, we can't even begin to build enough housing as it is, let alone uh, be adding the type of uh, numbers that we're talking about each and every year. We are speaking to Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West. We're talking about the record number of, um, of immigrants and temporary foreign workers and immigrants, uh, immigration uh, that we are seeing in our country uh, this year. Already 150,000 people have moved here to British Columbia in 2023 uh, alone. Brad, in regards to these numbers, when you talk about um, even uh, international students, uh, in some of our colleges we have, uh, you know, 30% of the revenue or student population base is now international students. In Ontario, uh, I believe next year at the rate they're going at, uh, international students will put more money into the college system than the actual provincial government. And it does speak to the reliance on uh, whether it be temporary foreign workers or international students or immigrants for our economy. Uh, in your community, how are you dealing with the broader issue of housing and the challenges of housing and these immigrants that are coming and needing places to live? Well, it's an incredible challenge because um, when you talk about the immigration numbers, I mean, it's something that's completely out of the city's control. What can the city do? The city can control land use. We can approve housing. Um, and, and then that's where it stops, you know, I continue to hear some levels of government talk about, well, c- cities building housing. We don't build housing. The city of Port Coquitlam has never built one unit of housing and, and never will. We approve land use, and then it's up to the builders, the private sector, uh, the property owner to decide. And, you know, and we have had you know, thousands of units go through our rezoning process, be approved, and then because of market conditions, and particularly right now because of interest rates, decide they're not going to build. And so it's incredibly challenging and frustrating because, as I think people are aware, the local government is under the microscope right now, and other levels of government waving their finger at us saying, you're the problem. Um, And yet from where I sit, I, I see our city approve every single housing application that comes in front of us um, and and that you know and that's our job. Those are the things that we're supposed to look at. But mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't have control uh, of of what happens after that point. Um, what I think is having a far greater impact on housing than municipal zoning processes is immigration. You know, and again, it, it's a simple matter, in my opinion, of arithmetic. I... You know, we have so many people in this country. We are able to build so many units of housing. Um, and when the federal government decides to supercharge those numbers, it is just, it is not viable. It's not 
it's not based in reality, Jazz, mm-hmm. because you just you simply can't make this housing appear out of thin air. And it also, as you know, takes a long time to construct it. Yeah. So uh, it, it, the, the whole discussion seems very detached from the reality of communities on the ground. But I think it is, it is I think we, the fact that we're talking about it says a lot. I had the housing, federal housing minister on, I had the federal immigration minister on, and I brought these issues up. And I think there is some acknowledgement they've gone too far. I had Pierre Polyev on the show earlier this week, and he, well, he didn't want to give me his full platform. He did mention on air that their plan uh, is going to be based on, when it comes to immigration numbers, how many doctors do you have in your community the year before? And how many houses did you, and how much housing did you approve as well? So he didn't get into specifics, but he did mention that to me earlier this week. You look at places like the Netherlands, a very progressive left-wing government, and they've re- elected uh, a pretty strong right-wing anti-immigration government recently. And it's a similar problem is that we are just, is too much immigration. And even immigrants are saying that. Do you fear the same, and I mean fear is not the word, but do you think we're heading in that same direction in regards to a, a federal election that is expected in, in uh, 2025, maybe earlier, that this is exactly where we're heading, that these policies are actually perhaps not turning off Canadians towards immigration, but certainly a greater amount of skepticism of immigration that we've never seen before simply because of these turbocharged immigration numbers. Well, I think it really gets to how detached the sort of political elite are in this country. Uh, I mean, they, they have been on this mantra for a long time. Um, And I do think that there is maybe a backlash is the right way of describing it. There's certainly a disconnect um, because I think regular people on the ground get it. Um, Immigrants themselves get it. I've I've had this discussion with many people who've uh, immigrated to this country more recently. uh, And, you know, they're of the same view. Um, So I think when the politicians stop listening, uh, voters are, I think, more apt to roll the dice on uh, political choices that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise made if, you know, if more of the mainstream political parties were listening. But they, they clearly aren't. They exist in this echo chamber. You know, so the, you know, who's the biggest cheerleaders for, you know, some of the mass immigration numbers? Well, it's been uh, corporate Canada. Um, and, you know, I would include the universities in that. Our universities have become like businesses, basically, mm-hmm. big business. Um, and, you know, and, and sort of the political Ottawa bubble. Uh, meanwhile, real people on the ground in our communities are seeing a healthcare system that has stretched the limit, an education system that can't even get uh, children in proper classrooms. Uh, they see uh, a runaway freight train on housing and not being able to build enough people, uh, enough housing for people. And they think, well, what gives? What planet are you living on that you think that in that environment, ah, the answer is to go even higher, have even more people? It, it just doesn't add up. And that's the disconnect. Well, I think this is going to be one of the main issues along with housing for 2024, and I hope we do address it because, as you say, it impacts everybody, whether it's immigrants who come to this country or everyday folks uh, just trying to get ahead as well. Brad, if we don't speak before the New Year, Merry Christmas to you and your family and Happy New Year to you. Very Merry Christmas to you and all your listeners, Jazz. Thanks for having me on. Joined by Jerry Mayor Judson, uh, who's going to give us uh, some information in regards to how, what we're spending this year, what we're eating in regards to, I guess, a survey done by good friends over at Research Co. Absolutely. You betcha. They did a heart, an annual holiday survey. They track trends. They track divisive holiday foods. And of course, um, in this year, I was interested in knowing because every single thing everyone talks about, I feel like, especially maybe because I'm in a news environment, but cost of living and uh, mm-hmm. we're spending more money. Everything costs more money. And of course, you know, you go to the grocery store, everything costs more. So I was curious and I spoke to, of course, Mayor Canseco, president of Research Co. And this year, it turns out that 47% of us are going to spend no more than $500 on all of our holiday stuff. And 42% of us are going to spend more than $500. And it's kind of almost an even split there. So I asked Mario about that split. It's an interesting stat because we do see British Columbia and Atlantic Canada way ahead of the curve. 
you see other provinces where people are really tightening their belts. You look at Alberta, you look at Ontario and Quebec, and they're saying, I'm not going to spend more than $500 on decorations, food and gifts. And in BC and in Atlantic Canada, we seem to be splurging a little bit more. It's, you know, this sense of, you know, we had a rough year, everything's more expensive, groceries are up, but that's still not going to deter me from having a holiday season where I'm going to do what I want. So that includes decorations and gifts and food. Yes, including everything. Uh, we, we wanted to ask it like that because, you know, there's always opportunities where you're thinking about gifts or you're not hosting anybody and you kind of lose that sense of expenditures that aren't necessarily related to gifts, but also to maybe the Christmas tree that you're going to be using or, or how many people you're going to be having over for dinner. It looks like more than half of us this year, up from last year, expect it to be more fun than stressful. You know, this is a question that we've been tracking since 2018, and it's interesting how you look at stress prior to the pandemic, 2018, 2019, and you had about a third of people who said, oh, it's going to be stressful, I'm going to have my family here, or I need to make sure that nothing gets burned, or, you know, it's too much of a hassle to travel to places, and everything changed with the pandemic. People were more likely to say, oh, this is actually something that can kill me, so now I am really stressed, and we had a significant level of stress in 2020, which is now back to the levels that we had before. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to be facing complexities when you're trying to organize uh, holiday get-togethers or if you have to travel somewhere. But uh, the amount of pressure that you're under and the anxiety that is going to be caused is going to be significantly lower from 2020 when we couldn't even hug each other. Let's talk about holiday food. I feel like we're a nation divided, Mario. <laughs> we are. There's, there's a complexity, I think, with a couple of factors. You know, a lot of the stuff that we eat during the holidays has dried fruit. You look at some types of mince pies, you look at the fruitcake, you look at the plum pudding. And the drop in plum pudding certainly caught my eye. You know, from 52% to 47%, huh. it's a big drop. And this is a very traditional thing uh, that comes from both sides of our ancestors. You know, it's something that was popular in Britain, something that was popular in France. And now we have 47% of Canadians who say, yeah, I'm not going to try this. I'm not really interested. The way in which Albertans feel about fruitcake, it's just off the charts. You know, <laughs> there's only about 30% who like it. So if you're in Alberta and you want to send somebody a gift, uh, and if you send fruitcake, I think they might take it the wrong way. Uh, but eggnog, you know, eggnog is, is fascinating. Huge levels of support, if you will, uh, in BC and in Alberta, a little bit lower in the rest of the country. And in Quebec, I blame translations. Uh, it's led the pool. Which yeah, it's essentially just chicken means milk. milk. Yes. So it's like, <laughs> do I really want to drink this? You know, even those of us whose exposure to French is essentially coming from whatever we are seeing at the back of our grocery thing, it's not that palatable. So maybe there's a rebrand that could be implemented uh, to bring eggnog to the level that it has in the rest of the country because Quebecers <laughs> are looking at the label probably and saying, yeah, I'm not going to try this. I'm going to stick with mold wine. Yeah, no, merci. I don't want chicken milk. I'm curious about you. Like, where do you stand on on eggnog? Oh, I've always been a big fan of eggnog. Yeah, um, growing up in Mexico, you couldn't get it in the store. Oh. And uh, my father-in-law uh, used to make it from scratch, and it was just unbelievably delicious. They liked it a little bit warmer, which is kind of what you get when you have those eggnog glasses that they sell at some of the places. But it's, it's an interesting thing because it's something that wasn't really big in Mexico. You know, you had to travel abroad to try something like that. And uh, he tried it once during one of his trips, and he started making it every Christmas. So... Um, that was one of the reasons to always be there on Christmas Eve, even if it wasn't your turn to be with that family, just <laughs> to try the eggnog. <laughs> eggnog. Eggnog, no, or chicken see. milk, as chicken. they say. A lait de poule. It's not like lait de poulet, but it looks a lot like lait de poulet. So they need to do something. They need to just say nog yeah. <laughs> de Noel. Nog. I've so, had this call. Uh, your people from Alberta and fruitcake. Hate fruitcake. Okay, my listen. God. My my home actually is a house divided on fruitcake. I not a fan. Do not like it's. I don't like dried candied fruit very much at all. I mm -hmm. think fruitcake is not good. But uh, my partner loves yeah. fruitcake. Both from Calgary. Really? Yeah, that person. They love. They love fruitcake. I haven't seen fruitcake in years. <laughs> you, like, like I see I it in the store. I yeah. do. You can see it in the grocery store. It looks like a weapon. I remember that as a kid. Yeah. But I haven't seen anybody give out fruitcake in a long time within my circles. Where do you but, sit on fruitcake? Uh, what is, what's your I'm opinion? Okay. Like it's, it's not. I think I'm, I'm done with fruitcake. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm done with fruitcake. You've I had enough. I, I had enough as a kid, I think, <laughs> that I'm actually done with that. But in regards to the spending, you know, mm -hmm. I think I think that's about right. You know, I think I know lots of um, couples as well. You know, you buy 
obviously presents for the kids, but you know, you can buy what you want anyway. So, you know, why, why spend it? I, I'm getting a lot of that. Like if you don't need, if you don't need anything, don't spend for the sake of spending, you know, yeah. buy for the kids or like for families anyway. I'm like that too. Like I don't really want anything for Christmas. I find like, yeah. it's, 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 uh, like I, I sometimes you're, so uh, I guess pressure to spend when you don't need to be spending. Totally. There's yeah. a lot of pressure to keep up with everybody. And I find I don't want anything for Christmas. I don't want to receive any gifts yeah. because then I also feel when do you stop buying gifts? For what level of separation do you stop buying gifts? Yes. Like if I buy a gift for one person in the office, do I have to buy someone thing for everybody in the office? Yeah, like, I, I don't. I also, the, one of the, one of the things we, my wife and I found as well, if you have an extended family, it, what, where, where do you draw where the line? Where do limit? you draw the line? Yeah, and it, what's the spend on your second cousin third three times removed how close are you what do you do it depends and then who's gonna feel shafted it's just the work that goes into finding something that's um, they'd want and you want to be conscientious and all that sort of thing like you gotta gotta cut it off so i'm just gonna give everyone a hug and a kiss and the thought that counts well especially (laughs) high interest rates and everything else honest to god it's a lot it's It's a a lot. lot Welcome back to the show. Time now to continue with our year in review series. Today, we look at Hollywood's tumultuous 2023. While actors and writers effectively brought the industry to a halt with an unprecedented financial, with with unprecedented uh, financial uh, consequences, the Barbenheimer phenomenon also brought hope and relief to theaters as well. Joining me now to discuss the year in entertainment is Rick Forchuk, who is a TV Week magazine columnist and a CKNW contributor. Rick, thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Jazz. Uh, an interesting year in entertainment. Uh, lots of um, what I would describe as positive news uh, for the entertainment industry as we, um, you know, move towards a post-COVID environment. But at the same time, those structural challenges for the entertainment uh, industry in regards to viewing habits uh, uh, are still a challenge. Let's perhaps start with the box office first and foremost. How would you describe the box office this year uh, uh, in regards to its strength uh, and the challenges that it's that it, that it has? Yeah, well, it had both of those things, Jazz. It had. There were times this year when uh, the uh, bean counters in Hollywood felt that uh, it was going to be a really tough year because not enough people were coming into the theaters. And then there were other times, such as uh, Killers of the Flower Moon and uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer, when everybody was saying, they're back, they're back, the world has been saved. And um, I think the interesting thing about that is it's product-driven. So give us a good movie uh, that people talk about and that they want to see, and folks will go to the theaters and they'll put their money down. Uh, give us a bunch of stuff that is uh, not particularly good, but it keeps the theaters open, and that keeps some people away. So all in all, looking at the numbers right now, year to date, it's going to be uh, the best year at the box office since before COVID. So 2019 was the last full year pre-COVID, and this will beat 2019 by a little bit, by it looks like. And uh, that, like, that's a good thing for the business, good thing for movies, good thing for people who work in the movie business, Jazz. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you're saying it's going to be slightly better than 2019, but let's just say we take uh, this year's numbers once they're done, compare that to, let's say, 2013, a decade ago. Uh, those numbers probably would be significantly different. Uh, they're different, but they're smaller, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. They are smaller. But, um, but there, is, that more, is that because we're charging more for theaters as well, or is it just the case exactly of exactly right? Okay, exactly right. Uh, that's precisely, uh, it costs you more to go to the theater. Uh, it doesn't mean more people are going necessarily. It means people are spending more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see the uh, films on the on the big screen, the AVX, for example, at Cineplex, there's a premium that you pay for that. So it's three or four dollars extra. Uh, they also push the D box seats for people who want a little bit more action, and you pay a premium for that. And something happened this past year, Jazz, that emulated what American theaters are doing. I didn't like it when they first started doing it in the U.S., because I spend a few months a year in the States, and uh, the movie experience there is similar to Canada. But when they started doing this thing, I thought, well, that's horrible. Thank goodness they do that in Canada. Well, they do in Canada now. And what it is is a service fee for booking your tickets online. So you go online, you buy your tickets, uh, you get your seats, you select your seats, and then you pay a 2 or $3 premium for having the opportunity to do that. And I think it ought to be the other way around. 
since we're not taking up space in the theater lineup, since we're doing all of the work ourselves, you'd think at the very least the price would be the same, mm-hmm. but it would make sense for it to be a dollar or two less, not $2 or $3 more. So those are the kinds of things that have added up uh, and over time make a big difference to the bottom line for the movie theaters. Yeah, that's like uh, paying extra for self-serve gas. It doesn't make yes. uh, doesn't make much sense, uh, sense at all. Uh, since we are talking about the box office a little bit, uh, where are we in regards to superhero movies? There's been talk of uh, the fact that people are just tiring of the Marvel Universe. Others have said, look, you just need a bit of a break. Uh, are we seeing the beginning of the end of of at least big Hollywood, the big studios' fascination with superhero movies and we go, moving towards perhaps a, a world with uh, different, more diverse stories, or is this just a, a, a pause before they begin again? Yeah, that's a good question, and I, if I had the answer to that, I'd be making a lot of money. Um, the challenge is, you're right about jazz. Uh, the, uh, for example, the Marvel pictures, uh, the last ones... Um, with uh, Captain Marvel, for example, were very soft at the box office and not nearly as big as some of the previous Marvel films. And I think it is that it's superhero fatigue. And we'll see what happens this weekend uh, with uh, the new Aquaman movie. That's another big superhero movie. And uh, is it going to pack people in? I'm not sure, because frankly, I'm tired of superhero movies personally. And um, I talk with people and they say, well, which, which Marvel movie was that? And you say, well, it's the one where Captain Marvel teams up with this other person. I said, well, I, I thought I saw that already. Uh, well, it was, it happened already, but we keep getting uh, sequels and prequels and the time jump uh, and uh, things that have changed uh, because um, somebody died, somebody didn't die, somebody changed the time stream, mm-hmm. and it really gets confusing. So I think you're quite right, Jazz, that it's it's an issue, it's a problem. We do have superhero fatigue, and thank goodness we have had some really exceptional films that are not sequels to anything. They're standalone movies, and they're good movies. Killers of the Flower Moon is one of those, and um, that that's a really, really fine, fine movie. Very well done. Uh, Oppenheimer is another. Uh, These things aren't attached to anything. Napoleon was yet another one. I didn't like Napoleon all that much, but it was a big movie with a lot of really interesting sidebars to it. So, yes, lots of good standalone ones that have done very, very well. And I don't want to ignore streaming, because there have been some movies on streaming that have been pretty darn good films. Uh, For example, one that you can still see, it's a Christmas-themed one, with Eddie Murphy called Candy Cane Lane, it's not a fabulous movie, but it's a really good family film. And if uh, anybody has a family that hasn't uh, checked this one out with the 12 Days of Christmas theme, it's really worthwhile. Candy Cane Lane on Netflix with Eddie Murphy. Uh, there are other films like that that have been streaming only that have done very, very well. And some that have been stinkers, Jazz. We are speaking to Rick Forchuk. We're talking about the year in Hollywood. We were talking a little bit about the box office. And part of the conversation, of course, was uh, uh, superhero fatigue. Uh, Let's uh, move on to streaming just for a moment. You mentioned streaming just before the commercial break, Rick. Um, The streaming services themselves, uh, prices have gone up. Uh, for for Netflix uh, in the new year, I already got a notice that Disney is going to be raising my rates as well. Uh, where are we in regards to the health of the streaming business? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and uh, I, I got the same notice for my Disney and for my Netflix in terms of the prices going up, and it's because largely uh, the method of counting how successful you are in the streaming business has changed. Initially, it was how many minutes of streaming are you doing? And Netflix would say, for example, uh, this big movie has streamed 2.3 billion minutes worldwide. Wow, that's great. That was the Hunger Ga- uh, the uh, um, Squid Game. Mm-hmm. That movie was sensational in terms of the number of people that watched it. But there was no correlation between the number of people who are streaming and how much money that you make. So what they've done, I think, if you step back and look at the business model, uh, Disney, uh, Amazon, uh, all of the streaming services, Netflix, have put their product out there. They've made it very, very reasonably priced. We get hooked on those services. We start to like their product. And now they say, okay, we've built this big base. We need to now start making some money, so we will have to 
jack up the prices, and that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And those that have good product will continue to make good money, and those that don't have good product will fall by the wayside. And uh, in the U.S. particularly, there have been some mergers and acquisitions of streaming services that have just kind of gone by the boards. We haven't seen much of that in Canada yet, but I do think that uh, the model is going to change. The other thing uh, is that um, both Netflix and Amazon is talking about it now, and other streaming services are offering an advertising-supported service. So you won't pay as much for it, but you'll have to watch commercials. Uh, Pluto TV is a good example of this right now. Uh, Pluto TV came right out of the gate as an ad-supported service, and I quite like Pluto. You can see almost anything on there, any old TV series of any sort, uh, all kinds of stuff from back to old Ed Sullivan shows and you name it. But uh, you get a lot of commercial minutes per hour, an awful lot of commercial minutes per hour. Mm-hmm. So it's an e- it's an evolving thing, Jazz. Uh, they're changing, evolving, and everybody's trying to make a buck. Yeah, as you and I speak, uh, there was conversation this week about uh, Paramount Plus uh, potentially merging with uh, HBO Max, Warner Brothers. So, Warner yeah, Brothers, yeah. yeah. So uh, absolutely, there's, there's a lot uh, of conversation in and around that. Let's talk broadly just for a moment about television. Where is the television industry going? I mean, there's a lot of talk about cord cutting, uh, when even sports is now being impacted, uh, places like uh, ESPN. There's talk of less channels uh, five years from now as the sort of ad-supported business. Our eyeballs are elsewhere now. We're look, viewing different things, uh, hearing different things, and the public seems to be everywhere. And many people have said what impacted, how newspapers were impacted, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago by the Internet. You're now going to see TV uh, impacted in a real uh, in a real way that we may actually see some networks shutting down or being reduced in size. How do you see it? Yeah, well, I think that's a good assessment. Uh, ESPN, as you mentioned, uh, for example, it's owned by Disney, and they have let laid off uh, hundreds of people recently. That's the case all around the block. And the regular television business is a business model that I think has seen its best days in the past. It's in the rearview mirror. Um, Now, we've had the actors and writers strike, so the impact on what we watch on television daily has really not been felt in terms of what's going to happen when our favorite shows start to come back. Um, Hopefully, we're not going to have all of the 90-minute reality shows like The Amazing Race and like Survivor and uh, like Big Brother. They'll go back to their regular formats. However, when we look at, say, the Chicago's, which are the most successful franchises pretty much on television, Chicago PD, Chicago Fire, Chicago MD. Um, these things are really, really interesting shows, but because they've been impacted so negatively by the strike, both writers and actors, we don't know what we're going to get. So I think we will see uh, a challenge here. Uh, the big problem with network TV, with regular cable television, is unlike streaming, you can't really access it on demand unless you're choosing to stream. Uh, whereas uh, when you're looking at the streaming services, you can sit down anytime, day or night, mm-hmm. and start whatever you want to start, uh, rather than having to wait till Wednesday night at 9 p.m. to see your favorite show, Jazz. Uh, you mentioned the, the writer's strike um, and actor's strike. Do you think they got what they wanted, or do you think we're going to see more strikes, potentially even as long as the one we just saw? It was a very lengthy strike. Uh, because there's so much turmoil in the uh, entertainment industry these days, from technology to viewing habits, uh, do you think the writers and actors were able to get what they wanted, or do you think this is, once again, a temporary lull before we go back at it at this again in, in, in a few years? No, I think they got what they wanted. Now, what will, what will make a difference is what technology does over the next two or three or four years, uh, between now and the time that, that next uh, opportunity is to renegotiate those contracts. And if technology continues to march on the way it has, there may be other issues that we don't even know about yet or haven't even thought about yet that negatively impact both actors and writers. So for the, for the moment, uh, there's peace on the horizon, and it looks good. And we'll have to wait to see how this all comes out, depending on what technology does. Um, I, I think the writers got what they needed, and I think the actors got what they needed, and I, they, they were all in solidarity together, and it was a long strike. It was a costly, costly strike for everybody, but I think there'll be some peace in the valley for a while. Well, Rick, thank you so much for your time. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and your family. Uh, to you as well, Jazz. Thanks. Always a pleasure. 
Time now for The Week That Was, your definitive source for political news where we delve into the headlines, dissect the debates, and analyze the events that shaped the past seven days. And today, I guess we're going to look at what's going to shape 2024. And most importantly, we'll look at what it all means for you. Joining me now is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hello, Keith. Merry Christmas to you and all your listeners. And Merry Christmas to you as well. Lots to talk about uh, because what is happening right now is going to impact 2024. Uh, perhaps let's start um, just your thoughts overall on where the NDP is in regards to polling and, and what you think they're sort of uh, looking at, thinking about heading into 2024. Oh, I think they're in a very comfortable spot. That certainly was reflected in David Evie's um, all the year-end interviews he's been doing. Very comfortable. He's riding high in the polls. Um, again, not much, I think, to worry about on the horizon, but, you know, the election's in October, unless it occurs sooner. And things can go wrong very quickly. You never know. Um, but I don't think there's any reason for them to be overly worried about their electoral chances. One of the clues to look for, and we're seeing this right now on the other side of the spectrum, is there's a number of MLAs in the VC United Caucus who have suddenly announced they're not running again, mm-hmm. uh, well ahead of the next election. I think we're up to six now. Um, I think we've got one new Democrat talking in it. And talking to some people in the upper levels of government pointed out that perhaps some of the veterans who may have otherwise been thought to have re- be retiring in the NDP side may run again because the pro- if the prospects of them going into government are very high, that's a very uh, enticing thing to put in front of a politician, not to be running to go into opposition, which is a thankless task, which I think is reflected in some of the retirements on the United side. Mm-hmm. If it's looking like you're going to be in opposition, that's not a very attractive place to be, especially if you've been in government before. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a telling thing to, to keep an eye on as we go into 2024. MLA's intentions, whether they run again, will reflect, I think, on their own view of their party's re-election chances. Uh, let's touch on uh, the centre-right side of, of politics, the BC United, uh, the Conservative Party of BC. Uh, one of them is the official opposition, but the other one, in this case, um, the BC Conservatives, are riding high in the poll. They're uh, placing second at this particular point. What do you see with this? Is there any chance of them in 2024 getting together and uniting? I, I don't see how. I mean, the egos at play here in terms of the people involved, um, the personal pride. I just can't see Kevin Falcon suddenly taking a step back and letting John Rustad run a merge party. And likewise, I can't see John Rustad taking a step back uh, and letting Kevin Falcon run a merge party. I mean, he was booted out by Falcon. There's some personal animosity there, I think. Um, also, there's there's competing philosophies. I mean, John Rustad is espousing things that are completely out of step with what many members of the BC United Caucus believe in. So I don't. I think these are not two parties that share the same views. It's two parties that have very significant differences, and I don't see them getting together because of policy and because of personalities. It's just. Uh, but if they don't do that, it's going to be fascinating to see how the year plays out. So are the Conservatives just this flash in the pan, or can there? Um, strength and growing numbers be sustained throughout the year. It was interesting, Kevin Falcon gave an interview to Canadian Press reporter Dirk Meisner um, this week, in which he called the polls, in his words, the polls are BS, which suggests he doesn't believe what's going on, that, or what the polls seem to suggest what's going on, which a number of people in his own party think is going on, which is the tr- public opinion is out there moving around and away from his party. So that that was a very telling comment, I think, and it doesn't bode well necessarily coming into the new year for them. Well, I think the B.C. Conservatives got about 2% of the vote last time in the last provincial election, and while that can't do tremendous amount of damage, it can have impact in certain ridings. If that support is at 5 or 7%, that's going to do a lot of damage. But when they're sitting at 25%, if you, let's just say they're able to sustain this, and I, I agree with Kevin Falcon, I don't think they'll be able to sustain it, but at the same time, even if they remain and they drop down to 15% or 10%. That has a huge impact on BC United's chances, yeah. number one. And, and, if, and if they do sustain it, what and everything falls apart and the NDP are re-elected, what does the free enterprise movement look like moving forward? Well, the Free Enterprise Coalition, which used to be the Social Credit Party for, for a number of years, then became the BC Liberals. Um, so they fell apart, the coalition, in 1991. It took 10 years to rebuild that coalition to the point coalition to the point of getting reelected into government. Uh, they almost got elected in 1996, but they couldn't quite get the coalition together, and, and therefore the NDP squeaked in with with actually fewer popular votes. So this can be a time cons- can be a time consuming process. So the coalition seems to have fallen apart. 
in the past year. So is it going to take 10 years to rebuild it? Perhaps not, but, you know, history shows it does take time. It can't be done in a short time, unless there's some sort of miracle comeback here by a party that no one's really heard of, BC United. Um, it's it's going to take some time for that coalition to rebuild. I think that's going to be one of the dominant stories of 2024, mm-hmm. political stories, is watching how that side of the ledger regroups and reforms itself, or if it can, or if it just remains split throughout the entire year until we get to the election. It's a fascinating thing to see in BC politics, and we haven't seen it since 1991. Yeah. Um, now, we spent so much time talking about the government itself, or we talk about the challenges with uh, the BC United and, and BC Conservatives, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the BC Greens. What, what, what are the chances for them? I, you know, they, were, they had a certain profile under their pr- previous leader, Andrew Weaver. It's a different time now under Sonia Furstenau. Uh, what, do you, what are they thinking right about now? Oh, I don't think they're in a good spot. I mean, again, going back to the polls, the other story no one talks about is the collapse of the Green vote. You know, it's been cut in half in poll after poll after poll. Uh, they've got two MLAs. Um, not sure where Sonia Furstenau is going to run the party leader. Rumor has it she's not going to run in the riding she currently has. May run in the new riding just out here in the outer skirts, outskirts of the capital. She hasn't made her announcement yet. The one glimmer of hope for the Greens is they almost won the West Vancouver see the sky riding last time. I actually finished second, uh, Jordan Sturdy. Well, Jordan Sturdy just announced he's not running again. So that takes away the incumbency advantage from the BC United Party. And if the Green Party vote can hold from what it saw in 2020, that puts that seat uh, in the crosshairs for them. And it's a potential pickup. But beyond that, hard to see the Greens really having an impact like they did in 2017 when they basically held the balance of power. Um, hard to see that play out in current uh, electoral map. And plus, you throw in the fact we're adding six more seats, most of which favor the NDP. Uh, the, I think the Greens will continue to struggle. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative uh, Bureau Chief. Uh, we're looking at the year ahead to a certain degree because so much of of uh, what's going to be occur, what is occurring right now is going to impact 2024, especially with the BC United, BC Conservative. We talked about the NDP government. We talked about the Greens. Uh, Keith, uh, I want to ask you about this housing policy. I know legislation was introduced. Uh, some mayors weren't happy. Others have said it's a one-size-fit-all. We're not, uh, it doesn't fit, it doesn't work for our community, whether it's Langley um, District or Langley Township, sorry, uh, Surrey or Richmond. Others have said they like it. I mean, how, what do you expect to, to happen in 2024, especially with the housing minister and some mayors already articulating that they're not happy with the policy? Well, it's an election year. Uh, I don't think the NDP government wants to pick a lot of fights with a lot of uh, municipalities, particularly in vote-rich areas and important areas where they, Langley, for example, where they had a historic breakthrough to win those two seats last time, and now there's a third seat being added to Langley. Surrey's the pivotal uh, classic BC battleground for ridings. Um, so it remains to be seen how this plays out. It's a very ambitious plan. Uh, it's got a lot of moving parts, and you're right, some mayors like it, some mayors don't. Um, but we're not going to see it necessarily be implemented in rapid fashion. I think there's going to be some breathing room here for mayors and councils to adjust. Uh, you've, we've had Richard Stewart on recently, Mayor Coquitlam, pointed out uh, some councils literally, or, or municipalities, um, city halls literally don't have enough staff to implement some of this stuff on a, on a rapid basis, on a very immediate basis. So it's going to take some time for this to shake out. The, the first uh, impact is going to be felt already, we're already seeing it, short-term rentals are suddenly being on the market, uh, being sold, because mm-hmm. uh, they can't be rented out anymore. They have to be long-term, long-term purchases. So that already seems to be having an impact. But some of the zoning changes... Um, and building your rapid transit lines, I think that's going to take some time to play. And given again, given this is an election year, I think uh, there's going to be slow progress. Even the government's own finance ministry mm-hmm. does not project, they actually project fewer housing starts in the coming year than this year. Not a, not a heck of a lot fewer, but um, significantly fewer starts. And, and so that's, uh, that's a big impact as well. Let's go to uh, Rob in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. Good afternoon, Jazz. Hello, Keith. Um, you know, I heard you say, Jess, and I think Keith agreed with you, that you, you don't feel the Conservatives can maintain their momentum. You know, I disagree with you 100% coming from a former NDP uh, member and a uh, now a Conservative member. 
the NDP, I listened to Mike Smith's show yesterday morning, your colleague there, Jazz, mm-hmm. and I heard that interview with David Eby. You know, the guy, I'm sorry, but it's true. If you listen to the interview, he blatantly lies. He says John Rusta is an anti-vaxxer. Not true. Not true. He's anti-vaccine mandate. Anti-vaccine mandate. He said he's a climate denier. He's not a climate denier. He, he knows. He admits the climate is changing. He talks about, you know, we're carbon-based beings. He's, he owns up to what he says. Rob, I, feel, I, think- I feel John Rustad is a straight shooter, and, and uh, I, think, I think they are on, we are on a track here to, uh, to do very, very well. And the NDP well, are going to have all right, a Rob, lot. All right, we got your point, Rob. Thank you. Thank you so much. We get it. Oh, I mean, Rob may be uh, absolutely correct. I mean, certainly right now, the momentum is more with the BC Conservatives than BC United. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, does that momentum continue? And so can they take a, a finding of 25% in, and again, public opinion polls have been very accurate in projecting, predicting and forecasting the election wins in a whole bunch of provinces and American states and U.S. elections. So they've, they've refined their techniques. So anybody suggests like Kevin Falcon, the, full, the, the polls are fake. Don't understand what's been going on in polling and politics for the last decade. 2013 stands out as a big miss by pollsters, and that's true. It was a big miss, but since then they've been very accurate. So, but again, if the polls reflect a growing resurgence of support for the VC conservatives that starts approaching 30%, 35%, I think that, and I said this before, that could trigger an early election by the NDP. If they're worried about a rise, in what that political party, which is the absolute opposite of them, that could trigger an early vote. I'm not saying it will. Yeah. David Eby isn't saying it will, but I certainly heard a lot of senior people in the NDP government voice their view that that might be required from their point of view. And let's not forget, as we get closer to the election, the questions are going to be much more focused towards Mr. Rustad. He's got a bit of a, he's had a bit of a free pass, yeah. and that's fine. And there's confusion over names. Uh, with the federal conservatives, he's living off that. Uh, but as we get closer to the election, there's gonna, they're going to be much more focused. And the public will be paying attention a lot more than they do right now when it comes to politics. And he but, seems to be leaning to the social conservative side, and that just doesn't get it done in terms yeah. of forming government in this province. It doesn't play well in Burnaby, Surrey, the North Vancouver and Vancouver, there's a whole bu- or the capital, there's a whole bunch of writings there that just are not going to be social conservative. Ex- exactly. Now, speaking of immigration and, and just change, Pierre Pauly was on the show uh, on Monday, and I, I asked him about immigration. What would he do? Because it's become such an issue. I just had Brad West on the show uh, at 3 o'clock talking about the immigration levels being just too high and the impact it's having on communities. I asked Pierre Pauly, what would he do? Uh, take a listen to his comments, Keith. We need to link immigration numbers to the number of houses that have been built in the preceding years and the number of doctors that have been added to the healthcare system. Humans need healthcare and housing. It doesn't matter where they're from. So if we're bringing people here we have, to increase our population, we have to have increased our housing stock and our healthcare resources by an equal or greater amount. Uh, and so we need to link the federal immigration targets to the amount of health care and housing available. And that's what my election platform will specify when we run for election uh, in, the, in the years ahead. So he's linking uh, immigration numbers to how many doctors in a community and how many houses did you build uh, well, last year? I, I think the bigger issue, immigration just playing a bigger and bigger role in a conversation, not just federally, provincially and now municipally as well. Yeah, so when you bring in 500,000 new arrivals every year, most of them are located in specific areas, and generally those are urban areas. It's not like everyone's moving to Dawson Creek. Uh, the three areas in B.C. are Metro Vancouver, the Central Okanagan, and the Capital Region. Those are the three areas receiving the, the huge pressure when it comes to a lack of housing and when it comes to a lack of doctors. Now, it's interesting, he's not the first guy to talk about linking immigration to housing, um, but throwing in family doctors... Not sure if that's really going to work, considering there's relatively few family doctors being added to the list every year to keep track with the huge population growth. Uh, and again, he, it's an interesting concept, but I'd like to see his formula, exactly how many immigrants are tied to how much housing. You know, right now it's 500,000 here. Does he take it down to 300,000, 200,000? What's the number? Mm-hmm. And he's going to be pressed for that detail. So it's, it's an interesting policy framework, but let's plug a formula in there to see what numbers he's really talking about. Yeah, I look forward to, to, to him providing more information as we get closer to a federal election. Keith, we've run out of time. Merry Christmas to you and your family. Happy New Year, and we'll chat uh, in 2024. Merry Christmas to you and everyone listening. Take care.
The last time America elected a president, it led to a deadly assault on the U.S. Capitol and a failed coup that gravely damaged the political system and marred the peaceful transfer of power for the first time in U.S. history. Less than a year from now, the nation's voters will decide another presidential contest, likely one that pits the same two candidates against each other. The results of that election, of course, will have a significant impact on the U.S., Canada, and the world. Joining me now to talk about the 2024 presidential election is Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. Reggie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, lots to talk about here. Uh, uh, an interesting 2024 coming up uh, with a uh, U.S. election. Um, you know, you cover this all, every day uh, in Washington. Your thoughts as we head into 2024, what kind of things are on your on your mind uh, as we head to a U.S. election? Well, I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of time to get to before we get to the election. And there's a lot of kind of crossroads at the United States where politics uh, and the legal system are going to run uh, not only in a parallel line, but they're going to intersect with each other. And it's all because of former President Donald Trump uh, and the myriad of cases that are heading to either circuit courts or the Supreme Court linked to everything from um, you know, defamation cases with E. Jean Carroll to, you know, the question of is Donald Trump immune from being prosecuted to the uh, matter surrounding classified documents. So even before we get to the primaries, even before we get to the convention next summer, the big question is, will Donald Trump face anything at the Supreme Court? And will that have an impact on what happens later in the year with the election? Um, is there any worry that, you know, with all of that's going on, that, that this may distrail, not the election, but just the the race itself for the Republicans? I mean, there seems there's a lot going on with different cases. Uh, and then, of course, just the polarized version of uh, polarized politics already in the U.S. I mean, is there any worry that things could go sideways here? I mean, look, there's always a possibility that anything can happen in an election year. We just have to go back to 2016 uh, when, you know, there was very little going on. It was just a case of is Donald Trump going to win? Is Hillary Clinton going to win? The FBI stepped in. Things went topsy-turvy and all of a sudden Hillary Clinton didn't win. Uh, You know, what's going to happen in 2024? It's unclear because this is a Donald Trump is a former president who oftentimes benefits from a polling push uh, when it comes to the legal system coming after him or when it comes to Democrats uh, going after him or when it comes to the House going after him. Uh, and, and he's been riding this wave of popularity, um, you know, in the months leading up to the January caucus uh, in Iowa, uh, where he has an almost uncatchable lead, uh, you know, with the, with the two behind him, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, you know, both tied at, at 11 percent uh, in these races. So even with the crises that are facing Donald Trump, the Republican Party is not turning on him. The base is not turning on him. And uh, and this is making it for a very difficult and, and steep, you know, uh, climb for someone like Joe Biden, the incumbent who wants to stay in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, even long before we get to an election, there is the threat of another government shutdown in the U.S. Uh, in January. Uh, how do you see things uh, as you watch this process unfold? Well, I mean, look, the, the reason that there's a the threat for a government shutdown is because Republicans punted all of the financial problems to the beginning of the new year. And not only did they punt them to the new year, Jazz, they punted them twice to the new year because the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, uh, had put two different deadlines for government funding, uh, you know, with military funding on one side and discretionary funding uh, on the other side, one late January, the other early February. Um, it's going to be a question as to whether or not he can rally his um, rally, rally the Republicans together in the House in order to get these bills uh, passed. At the same time, with the government shutdown, you know, to deal with, he's also dealing with the fact that there is a uh, a spending bill that has been requested by the president to send money to places like Israel and Ukraine in order to fight the wars uh, that are going on. So there are three hefty financial pieces of legislation that are coming to the floor of the House. They have not really been able to get their their act together on anything over the last three or four months, almost the last entire year. So it's a question as to whether or not there's going to be pushback from the furthest right members of Republican Party in the House, um, you know, and, and possibly let the government shut down. It's been threatened before. Will they follow through with it or do we end up with an 11th hour deal? You know, that's what everybody's watching come the end of January. 
You mentioned the the wars in Ukraine and uh, and in Israel. Uh, what is the appetite uh, in, in, from you uh, in regards to what you hear from the American public there for this to continue on in regards to funding? Because there has been a lot of talk and skepticism from the Republican side, particularly when it comes to Ukraine. Um, but uh, uh, just a general aversion to not get stuck or even paying for these wars over the long term. What what, what are you hearing uh, in regards to both of these wars? Well, I mean, it, it's almost two different tracks here. With Ukraine, uh, there is there is skepticism running incredibly high within the Republican Party. Uh, you know, they see, uh, uh, you know, gains on the, on the battlefield by Ukraine that are far less than what they had expected. And they, they, they claim that there's not enough transparency with the amount of money that's being handed from the United States, you know, $100 billion plus to where they are uh, right now, despite the fact that Ukraine hasn't fallen. Russia has not taken Kiev. Um, and, you know, I think that that speaks for itself. It's, it's this is simply a matter of Republicans pushing back on a White House request. At the same time, there's also a request uh, for money for Israel and Republicans uh, have no problem trying to hand over uh, this part of funding where where the kind of issue lies here is with some progressive members of the Democratic Party who do not want to see the United States providing Israel with money because there's a fear that it could be used. Uh, to to continue to fund this war that that puts Palestinian civilians in harm's way. And it is the the White House handling of the war in Israel right now that's contributing to some of Joe Biden's, um, you know, historically low approval ratings right now. And it's that same support for Israel that has put Joe Biden in critical territory in places like Michigan and Nevada, which lean the Democrat and now are a toss up. Mm. Uh, two other issues uh, many have said w- may play a role in the broader conversation uh, uh, to, with the run-up to the uh, U.S. election, immigration uh, and abortion. Um, first of all, on immigration, how big a role will it play, particularly with the southern border, uh, in regards to the discourse during the, um, the federal election? Well, I mean, look, Republicans have been fired up about immigration since long before Joe Biden was in office. Uh, You know, we had Donald Trump trying to build a wall. And look, the numbers are not good for the Democrats. Immigration is a federal matter. uh, And there are uh, there are states like in Texas where Governor Greg Abbott continues to move immigrants out of the state and putting them uh, into cities uh, like Washington, D.C. or New York or Chicago, putting strain on those systems. Um, you know, it's embraced by Republicans. It does face significant pushback from Democratic voters, particularly in populist Democratic uh, cities like Chicago, uh, that can carry uh, significant weight when it comes to an election. How big it factors into whether or not Joe Biden, you know, doesn't win at the polls because of immigration. Um, you know, it, 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 it's an unanswered question. It's an unknown question. But but the administration says that they're doing everything that they can even though we see these numbers of illegal crossings at the southern border in Texas reaching some of the highest numbers ever. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is also expected to um, once again uh, be, uh, consider abortion policy uh, this year uh, before Election Day. How do you uh, see that conversation uh, move move forward in regards to the election? Because I, 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 I'm going to assume there's not very little chance of any of both parties coming together on a, on a national abortion rights policy? No, it's polar opposites of where Democrats uh, and Republicans stand on the matter uh, of abortion and whether or not it should be a federal matter or whether it should be left to uh, individual states' rights. Uh, but it is still going to factor in, especially if the Supreme Court decides to step in and deal with how um, abortion drugs like mifepristone uh, can be prescribed uh, or taken or accessed. Uh, look, this is not something that has, has gone away in the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade. We saw Democrats run on it in the uh, midterms uh, in 2022. We've already seen Vice President Kamala Harris making the rounds over the last several weeks, trying to ensure that this is something that is on the mind uh, of voters. Uh, and, and Democrats benefited from uh, these rallying cries uh, in 2020 and in 2022. And if they can keep it top of mind, uh, there's a chance that they could capitalize on that. Is it going to give them as big a push that they need heading into 24? It's, it's, it's unknown because there are so many other issues that are kind of running in circles right now around the president, namely the economy, despite the fact that the markets are doing well and wages are going up. Um, inflation remains high, uh, and that is going to be a difficult hurdle for the president to, to, to kind of run over 
uh, as he heads towards 2024 and November. I'm sure Justin Trudeau is also looking at those interest rates in the economy as well and uh, deciding when that election will be coming, which is scheduled for 2025, but you never know, it might be a little earlier. Uh, Reggie, if we don't speak before the New Year, Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year. All the best. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.